This is Hockey Central 960 with Haley Salvian on your official home of the Flames, Sportsnet 960, The Fan. What's up, everybody? Happy Thursday. Welcome into Hockey Central 960. Haley Salvian here with you for the next hour. I've got to say, look out for the fake... NHL player safety accounts because we've already had a couple scares today. NHL player safely, uh, NHL player safety. Lots of spell, lots of new accounts popping up here, trying to to get everybody all confused and up in arms about a potential Alex Petrangelo suspension. That is kind of one of the big headlines of the day out of the Oilers Vegas Golden Knights game from last night. Edmonton beats Vegas four to one. That series is now tied to two just before the show came on here. It was announced that Darnell Nurse has been suspended for one game and Jay Woodcroft, the head coach, the Oilers has been fined $10,000 under rule 46.21 for the instigator penalty uh so that's the the rule that goes like you're there's an automatic suspension if you instigate a fight in the final five minutes of regulation darnell nurse got the instigator penalty after fighting nick Hag with about a minute or so within the final minute of the game last night between the oilers and the golden knights um you know that's an automatic suspension pending a review After the game, Jay Woodcroft said he thought the fight was between two willing combatants. Obviously, after that review, the the Department of Player Safety upheld the suspension. So Darnell Nurse suspended for one game. Meanwhile, Alex Petrangelo had a hearing today, will have a hearing today for slashing against Leon Dreisaitl. Um, Correction, chopping the hands of Leon Dreisaitl. So that's the one that we're all kind of waiting for, and that's where... Stay vigilant online. Don't don't fall for the fake player safety Twitter accounts because I already saw one right before we started here. I had to say to producer Cam, like, how how do they spell this? How do they spell this one? Is this wrong? Uh, yeah. So beware out there. This new Twitter update is just terrible. Yeah. Stay stay vigilant, folks. Don't don't fall for the NHL employer safety account we're still waiting for official word from the actual account if Petrangelo is going to be suspended uh, after the game last night Connor McDavid called that that slash on dry sidle as intent to injure as you can get um, I think the fact that he is having a hearing like we're probably going to see something uh, whether it's one game two games uh, I don't think Petrangelo has been suspended before um, so you know, and Drysidle didn't leave the game. Obviously, it was late in the game. Doesn't look like he's injured. So there are things that are kind of working in his favor. But I mean, you can't do that. So I would expect one game, two game suspension. But I've also given up trying to guess what these suspensions are. It's kind of a fool's errand. So we'll just wait and see for official word there. Um, I do understand that Petrangelo has been absolutely targeted by the Edmonton Oilers in this series. And if the refs have done a better job calling the infractions against him, maybe he doesn't feel the need to police the situation himself. But again, you you can't you can't hack at a guy's hands like that. Um, so in a best of three series, which is what the series is at now, given that it's tied to two, Darnell Nurse suspended for one game, and we await a potential suspension for Alex 
Petrangelo. Uh, other headlines today, Toronto Maple Leafs, they stave off elimination last night with a 2-1 win over the Florida Panthers. That series is now 3-1. Um, that's the only series, it seems, that hasn't had a ton of blowout games. These have actually been pretty close games, which probably makes it more stressful for the Leafs fan. In your life, Mitch Marner and William Nylander score the goals for Toronto. Joseph Wall looked great. Uh, the Leafs put together a much better, much more complete effort. They did really well in front of Joseph Wall defensively, much stronger. Game five is going to be in fr- on Friday in Toronto. Um yeah, you got to do it one more time to get to sunrise for game six and three more to make it to round three. I I think Florida eventually seals it, uh, but we'll see. Maybe Toronto will become the fifth team to come back from a 3 nothing deficit. Who knows? We'll see. Um, today on the show, we're going to talk to Greg Wyshynski from ESPN. And later on in the hour, Ben Pope from the Chicago Sun-Times is going to join us. We'll talk a little bit more about the impact that Connor Bedard has already had on that market, assuming the Blackhawks take him first overall. I think there's no suspense there. I think we can all assume that's what's coming. Um, but for now, let's go to the Atlas Pizza Guest Hotline because I believe we have Greg Wyshynski on the line. He's a senior writer for ESPN. Greg, how are we doing today? Thanks for joining us. I'm good. I'm good. I have to I have to push back. I don't want to get off on the wrong foot, but I have to push back on this notion of they were mean Alex Federangelo's they were mean to me. And so I decided the only course of action I have <laughs> is to get across the ice and try to break the wrist of the best player in the playoffs. Like that is some old school Adam Graves, Mary Lemieux stuff. I've had to deal with some other people today talking about all the abuse he's taken. And again, like if we want, if we want to go follow the trail of dominoes, like, okay, they, they missed a call in the 2002 Western conference semifinals too. Like there's going to be one about ism at every turn because they never get it right. But in this case, it is so cut and dry attempt to injure. The only way he doesn't get more than yep. one game is because thank God dry wasn't injured, but right. I mean, probably deserves at least two for the intent. I'm with you. I'm just saying that because the last cut, like I tweeted about it last night. It's like, well, they missed this call and they missed that call. Okay, I get it. Sure. They've been targeting him. Uh, don't do that still. That's the underlying. It's like, okay, fine. I get it. I understand what you're saying, but also like, don't hack at dry sidles wrists. Like, just don't. <laughs> it was, it was such a cheapy. Like, I mean, thank God so he didn't bad. get hurt. It could have been it could have been a series turning injury, a playoff turning injury for the Oilers if if that thing connects in a different way. And and it's just the intent of it. Like to skate over and do it in a game that's completely lost for them at that point. It was just it was ugly. I mean you we talk all the time about like what we want in a player safety and we can quibble about we want them to suspend more, we want them to suspend for longer, we want them to suspend for this play or that play. Most of that stuff is happening during the course of play. And, and a lot of it sometimes can be a split second. Like this was the one where it is like a layup. It is a, slant, it is a windmill dunk from the foul line for player safety to just be like, oh, this play? Yeah, this is the one we suspend. The guy skating over and trying to break the risk of, risk of the best score in the playoffs. Totally. I think if it's not two games, then, well, what are we even doing here? And maybe they'll just make it one because they don't want to. They don't want to, you know, affect the game. They don't want to. You know, they've got a best of three. We can't suspend with one of their best defenders for two of those three games. So let's just give them one. I wouldn't be shocked if we saw that. I think it should be two, though. It wouldn't shock me either. And here's an interesting thing I found out today. So, in the past, when you had automatic suspensions, 
uh, for stuff like fights at the end of the games. Right. Hockey operations were the ones that handled it. And so that was, that was Colin Campbell. You guys probably know the name. Um, and, and so that's who used to handle this thing. At some point, and the NHL couldn't tell me exactly when, the automatic suspension thing became part of the Department of Player Safety's purview. So I was under the impression that these would be two separate NHL departments making these decisions. Like hockey ops would say whether Darnell Nurse was suspended for a game. Player safety would say whether they're going to suspend Petrangelo and for how long. But it turns out George Peros is making the call on both of these. So to your hmm. point, if it ends up being a game for both and Peros is controlling both of these suspensions – kind of puts them in an uncomfortable spot to, to do exactly what you're saying, which is we don't want to influence the, the end of the series. It's a best of three now. We don't want to you know, put the Golden Knights' best defenseman on the pine for longer than nurses out. And if that's the way they rule it, I mean, I, I think they're deservedly going to take a lot of grief for it. Yeah, it's going to be pretty lame. Um, one of the other pieces <laughs> of news, like just go, yeah, that's it. That's lame. That sucks. But I try not... <laughs> That's all I have to say. I'm keeping it simple on this one. <laughs> one of the other uh, headlines of the day, though, Greg, the Flyers have named Keith Jones the position of hockey, uh, president of hockey operations, and they took the interim tag off of Daniel Breer, so he's going to be the general manager of the Flyers moving forward. I think we could have seen the Breer move coming. Um, it, it seems like uh, Comcast sees him as this kind of next up-and-coming young general manager. Um, but I find the Keith Jones one kind of interesting. Former player, works as an analyst for many years. I guess I just thought they might have looked for a more senior, experienced front office person, given Breer is pretty new in an NHL front office. But also um, that experience kind of retread executive model hasn't always worked. I think you can look at the Pittsburgh Penguins as an example of the Brian Burke, Ron Hextall duo not working very well. Do you have a thought on that news today about what comes next in the front office in Philly? Haley, I have many thoughts. Um, the first being I'm sure that it'll probably lead to Briere hiring a veteran assistant general manager. Remember how like Rick Dudley would get hired by like every team <laughs> to be sort of, like the old guy in the front office. Like he's going to find his Rick Dudley. He's going to find somebody who's been around the block. Well, it would shock me if it was a guy who used to be a, a general manager someplace to help him out and, and give him some, some sage advice. I think that's probably the way they go there. Now the Keith Jones hiring got dunked on pretty good by a lot of people. I mean, that they saw it as sort of, Oh, a, an old flyer getting another front office job with the, with the Philly you know, what has he done? He's only been on television, and, and this is very true. All of this is true. But the, the thing that I think is lost is that the president, the president job, the job that he's taking, I mean, it's essentially a political job. Like, the title kind of infers it, but it's essentially a political job. And if you remember everything we read and we wrote about the Flyers situation when they blew up their front office, it was very much that they have these old guys that are behind the scenes, your Holmgrens and your Bobby Clarks, then you have ownership from Comcast, and then you have hockey operations now at Briere. And what they needed was somebody to kind of like put everybody on the same page and maybe push up against the old guard if things weren't, aren't, aren't you know, to their liking. And I think Keith Jones can do that. I mean, it's essentially a communications job. It's a, it's a personality management job. And if you've ever talked to Keith Jones, he's a very charismatic guy. Um, he's a very confident guy, and, and he's a likable guy. And, and I think mm -hmm. in that role, kind of like what John Davidson did for the Blue Jackets, for example, like in that role, I think he's fine as long as it's not a situation where they're relying on him to 
you know, map out the next three years of, 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 of the prospect pipeline or something. <laughs> right. This isn't like a Jim Rutherford, Patrick Alvin thing. Like the, the president of hockey operations is not going to be, you know, the guiding hand for shaping the NHL roster. It's going to be Danny Briere and it's going to be Jones being the more like media facing guy, which is something that they needed. And that's yeah, okay. And, it, <laughs> and it's probably going to be John Tortorella too, helping out to kind of shape the and mold the team. I mean, we have to remember that this is a guy who has survived regime change and is obviously going to be a part of whatever they build going forward. And it's going to probably be a team built in some ways in Torts' image. So, you know, that's, that's a huge part of this too, is that it's not simply just Danny Briere being like, I'm going to build a Danny Briere team. He's got a coach that's making a lot of money. That's going to have some influence on that roster too. It's kind of tough because it's, it's obviously a very small sample size that we're looking at. So maybe this is a difficult question to ask, but like, do you think Briere can be one of these like next up and coming young general managers? Cause it seems like that's what Comcast thinks about him. Um, I don't know if I've seen enough, but it seems like he's, I think he checks a lot of boxes though, which makes him an interesting general manager to watch, right? Because he's been open to the new age analytics stuff, but he also was, you know, a really talented and effective NHL player for a long time. And he's kind of worked his way up to this point. I think he's kind of going to be an interesting, yeah, and he's, interesting guy to watch. Yeah, I was going to. Uh, yeah, exactly. And, then, you know, he, he was in the minor leagues for a little bit and, and kind of like learned the ropes there as, a, as an executive. And, you know, I think he's probably one of these guys who, who played in a lot of places with some interesting people that can have a, a pretty big Rolodex of, of people he can call and rely on and, and learn from. I, I'm, I'm optimistic. I think he's the right age to take this gig. I, I like the fact that he does have ties to the organization. And a lot of it is going to be who he surrounds himself with um, and, and that sort of thing. But the other thing, too, is that it's just, I mean, this is, this is a pretty big job uh, in Philly. I mean, they've got some guys on the roster, veteran guys. They're going to have to figure out what to do with from Provorov to others. Um, are they part of the solution? Are they, you know, players that you ship out to try to go to the next thing? Um, is Carter Hart the, the franchise goalie? Like, there's a ton of really interesting questions he's going to have to address in this, in this job, and, and I'm sure has already started to because it was pretty obvious when he was interim jam that he was going to end up being the GM. So I'm sure he's, he's already mulled a lot of this stuff over. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, soon we're going to get the announcement that Rick Dudley has been hired by the Flyers, <laughs> but I think he's working for the Panthers right now. So let's maybe. Yeah, there's got to be some that. other like GMs in that mold that are like, like that, like that, you know, that are just like you call him up and he's your consigliere and, you know, you're like, what should I do? And he's like, well, when I was with the Buffalo Sabres in 1993, <laughs> we were at the draft. You know, it's that kind of the thing you need with your like Danny Breer. Totally. Um, looking ahead to tonight, the Carolina Hurricanes can eliminate your New Jersey Devils. They're up 3-1 on the series. Do you think they can claw back? They showed some fight in game three, but game four just looked like it was all <laughs> all Carolina. How are we feeling? My, fa my favorite stat of the postseason is that the Devils have been outscored in their six losses, 32-7. to seven, And <laughs> I believe they've been outscored in this series, like, seven, maybe 17-3 to three in their losses. Like, it's oh. indicative of a young team that when things get rough and it looks like you're not going to win, you just get boo-boo-faced and sulky and get blown out. And that's kind of what happens in these games. I don't think it's going to happen tonight, to be honest with you. I actually think the Devils are going to win. I think they're going to extend the series, um, mainly because another, another facet of being a young team is 
the fact that every time the expectations to win aren't there, they seem to thrive. You know, whether it's being, you know, losing the first two games of the Rangers series, losing the first two games of the Carolina series, they bounce back, win game three in this series, they win two in a row against the Rangers. Like game seven against the Rangers was very much a, uh, we don't expect this team to be able to seize the moment. They're back to being the underdogs. They win game seven. So I feel like when, when there's no expectation for them to win is when they actually play their best. And, and I don't think there's any expectation for them to win tonight because Carolina in, in three victories has really put the clamps down on the devil's offense. Um, so we'll, we'll see what happens. But I'm actually, I'm actually kind of thinking there might, there might be a game six. Don't forget the Islanders also went into Raleigh and won a game five in the previous round yeah. too. So it's not out of the question if somebody could do that. Yep. Something, something, the fourth win is the hardest one to get in a series. And uh, we've already seen that the Devils are able to have some pushback in a moment. I mean, the Canes had an opportunity to go up 3 nothing in the series, which is really tough hole to dig yourselves out of. It was the same situation in Toronto where the Toronto guys didn't show up in Game 3, but Jack Hughes scores two goals, four points, 8-4 win. I could see it. I could see this going six. I'm with you. Um, even if it sure. ends in Round 2, though, can you can you call this a successful year in New Jersey? Like just based on the turnaround from being in the basement to putting up a fight in the second round. Like I, I know people don't want to hear about moral victories and well, you know, it could have been worse. Like I, I still think you can say this was a, a good season for the Devils. Yeah, I mean it's they beat the Rangers in seven games. Like anything ha- happens now is crazy. Like even winning the cup is gravy. Like that's all that really matters. <laughs> that they they didn't lose in seven games to the Rangers. That's kind of the very localized version of, of whether or not this season is, is a success. <laughs> but beyond that, though, I mean, you got to remember, like, this is their first time in the playoffs since, I think, 2018. First time in the playoffs for Brat, for Hughes, for uh, the other Hughes, like, for a lot of these guys, for Heischer, I guess, second time. He hasn't been there in a while. Um, so it's all a big learning experience. It's understanding what has to happen for you to win a playoff series. They've got one under their belts. They're learning even more when when you're playing a really tough defensive team like Carolina. And the bottom line for Jersey is that like, it's not a window to win. It's like a barn door right now for them. Hughes has played less than 10 games. Luke, I mean, Simone Nemish hasn't even like played in the NHL yet. And he's like one of the best defensive prospects in the world. So, I mean, they've got a lot in the hopper. They've got a lot on the roster. Their, their runway is, is quite long. And I give them credit for, for going a little bit, in on with a guy like Timo Meyer, that was something that should happen. The, the team played well enough to deserve that, but like they've just got a very long view of everything. And I think that even if they, you know, bow out in five, they're going to be pretty happy with with, how, with what happened this season. I like that they were able to add Timo Meyer without subtracting any of those young players that you kind of mentioned, like no, Dawson Mercer still there. <laughs> like they didn't have to sacrifice any of that youth that makes this team have this kind of big open optimistic window of success to bring in Timo Meyer. probably makes the fact that he only has yeah, like one I, goal easier to stomach too yeah. well we didn't have to give he, up that much he's so. not been, it, was, it was a tough sledding for our boy but like I think <laughs> your to your point though is I mean when you start to really assess what they need to do going forward I mean the fact of the matter is that they don't have anybody who can stop the puck right now. Like Akira Schmidt was a great story in the previous round, but I mean, he hasn't been the same goalie since then. And Vanacek has been, I mean, an agent of chaos in the playoffs, basically after a pretty good regular season. So the idea that they didn't, they didn't spend any of that prospect capital or, or really, I mean, they had to spend, I guess, a pick or two, but like they have a lot in the hopper where they can maybe go out and make an aggressive push for, 
I don't know, Connor Hellebuck or, or Thatcher Demko or any of the like tier one goalies that could potentially be available. Like if, if those teams are looking to kind of like morph into whatever is next for them, like the devils have guys on their roster that could help you. Now they have people in their system that can help you later. They, there'd be a team. They're a team that's well positioned to make a run at a goalie. If, if one of these elite guys like prize open. They have a ton of work to be done this summer, too. I mean, they've only got 12 guys signed, ton of RFAs, a couple unrestricted free agents. As you mentioned, they've, they have a big question mark in that goalie position. I mean, Vanacek is, is locked in for the next couple of years. Um, but that's going to be an interesting summer in New Jersey, and I wonder if, I wonder if Timo Meyer just becomes a casualty of, of all the work they have to do. And I mean, they've got $34 million in cap space per cap friendly to work with, but I wonder if they. I wonder if he just ends up having to fall to the side so they can check off all the other boxes on their list. Right. I mean, and again, like, how much do you want to dedicate to, to Meyer? He's got that infamous signing bonus. There, there are some ways you can try to mitigate the damage of that by, by kind of like, you know, fighting it a little bit or, or what right. have you. And and you know, it, it's there's a number of of sort of risky things that you could do to try to mitigate it, but. At the end of the day, it, it is what it is, and they knew what it was when they acquired him. But again, like the reason they acquired him was not because he's some 33-year-old, you know, former goal-scoring great. I mean, he's he's very much in his prime, so I think they do see him as being uh, a player that they'd like to to keep around long term if they can. But I mean, it's got to make financial sense for all the other things that they have to do with that roster. One of the other games tonight is uh, Dallas and Seattle, pretty back and forth series to start i mean it's tied 2-2 through the first four games one of the big question marks i think is is how i mean i've said this on the program i think people who are listening are probably sick of me talking about how i've jumped on the stars bandwagon i really do like that team (laughs) but i do wonder how long can they kind of continue to survive through this jason robertson goal scoring slump at least at five on five well i i think they they did a very important thing last game to try to changed that, which is that they reunited Robertson and Rupe Hens with, with Joe Pavelski. And that line, I mean, for the last like two years, probably been outside of maybe, um, you know, when Kachuk and Gaudreau are together in Calgary, outside of maybe the height of the Bergeron, Marchand, Pasternak trio when they were together, like that Robertson, Pavelski, Hens line is probably the best in hockey. So, you know, they got a game under their under their belts together. I expect that they're going to probably make a pretty big mark on this game tonight. But the big thing for me tonight in Game 5 is, you know, you, again, you look back to the previous round. Stars won Game 4 in Minnesota. Game 5 in Dallas was a, a Jake Ottinger night. Like, he pitched a 4 nothing shutout. He was great in that game. He's been a little bit below expected in, in all the games that he's played against the Kraken, if you look at it analytically. And I, and I think he's due, due for one of those nights where – we're all left talking about him being, you know, one of the few elite goalies left in the playoffs. Um, and, and plus, on top of that, I thought that Dallas did a really good job suppressing uh, Seattle's shots in Game Four. If you look at the numbers, they did a really good mm-hmm. job there. So, might be a combination of a goalie having his best game of the series and, and a team figuring it out itself defensively. But I think there's a reason why the Stars are really heavily favored right now uh, in Game Five. And you had a story on ESPN. We've got a couple more minutes left, and we're talking to Greg Wyshynski from ESPN here on the Atlas Pizza Guest Hotline. One of your recent stories uh, was about the kind of coaching carousel and, and who fills this year's coaching vacancies. There's five right now, some potentially 
uh, more to come. I think the most interesting one is in, in New York. Uh, I mean, Gerard Gallant couldn't believe that he had to answer questions about getting fired, and then they, quote-unquote, mutually parted ways a few days later. That's probably the the more interesting topical one to look at. Um, and there's just rumblings about Mike Sullivan, even though he has a contract extension <laughs> in Pittsburgh. Like, uh, maybe it's just because it's the Rangers, it's Broadway, et cetera. But uh, what's going on there? Like, who could be a realistic upgrade over Gerard Gallant in New York? But that's just it. Like the reason why there's such mania about that opening is because we can't handle the illogic of firing Gerard (laughs) Gallant without having something lined up. Like we all want to believe the Rangers are playing 4D chess right now. And that's why we all thought, oh, maybe it's Quenville. But then, you know, they put out through their their media insiders that it's not going to be Quenville. And then we're like, well, what about Mike Sullivan? He was an assistant in New York under Tortorella. And then it became a whole bunch of people theorizing how that could happen. Oh, maybe they hire Kyle Dubas in Pittsburgh and Dubas doesn't want Sullivan there. Maybe Sullivan decides he's tired of trying to, you know, force through something in a window that doesn't exist. You know, it's all these theories now about why he might not leave despite having a contract extension that hasn't even started yet. I mean, which is incredible to think of. Um, and then if it's not him and it's not Q, I mean, you start to think about who it could be and, and it, it gets kind of random. I mean, like, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what, like the last Devils game I covered, the, the scuttlebutt amongst the New York quarters was, was what if it's Patrick Waugh? And, and, and specifically because Chris Drury played with Waugh in Colorado. They've got a relationship. Uh, Waugh has been, you know, killing it in juniors after, you know, his coaching stint with the Avalanche ended. For most of that stint with the Avalanche, he did a pretty good job, won the Jack Adams, right? So, like, there's a whole other level of speculation now about, like, what about him? So, it all stems from the fact that we're all baffled <laughs> as to how right. you fired Gerard Gallant after two successful regular seasons, a trip to the conference final, one bad week against the Devils in a Game 7 loss, and then he's out. And we all assume it has to be for a reason, but what if it's just because it's James Dolan's team? <laughs> and chaos <laughs> reigns sometimes when it's a James Dolan team. That could be easily be the answer. I've got to tell you, my dad keeps on asking me, like, why did they do that? I don't get it. And I'm like, I don't really know what to tell you. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, it, it's it is. <laughs> I mean, you could you could see you could hear it in his voice when he was so petulant. I was there in the press conference when he was kind of talking about how disappointed he was in the media, asking about whether he was going to get fired. And I mean, to his credit, he was right to criticize us. He didn't get fired. He mutually parted ways with the team. Wink, wink. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, the place where I find it interesting. There's two places where Gallant has been kind of linked uh, in, in, in a sort of informal way. One is Washington, and Washington, I think, will probably go more in the Spencer Carberry route, the assistant coach of the Maple Leafs. He coached their uh, AHL team in Hershey. He's got some ties to the organization. Seems like a good new voice to have behind the bench. They already did the veteran thing already with LaViolette, so I, I don't think it'd be there. But then, like, there's been speculation that what if it's Calgary? Like, we obviously don't know who's doing the hiring in Calgary yet because they don't have a GM, but... The idea of Gallant coming in there with a group of veteran players, it seems like a re- – and again, being a player's coach versus what they had there last year seems to be right. a pretty smart move and, and obviously is a guy who brings a lot of regular season success with him. Yeah, that's an interesting one too. I, I'm kind of curious about Anaheim. Like are they just going to opt for for a younger coach? Maybe they go for, for a more mm. veteran guy after, you know – Dallas Eakins didn't quite work out. Like I'm curious about what the what the Anaheim's and the Columbus Blue Jackets 
uh, of the world are going to be doing as well. Do they do they go young? Do they go for a veteran who can turn it around quickly? I'm not sure. I cut. I cover both of those in the column today, and like I, mm-hmm. I think Columbus, from reading the tea leaves, I wouldn't be surprised if it ends up being their associate coach, Pascal Vincent, who's been waiting a really long time to get his shot as a head coach in this league. And, and I think but some wasn't of wasn't Brad Larson waiting too? Aren't they just doing well, this? Yeah, Didn't they just do the this? Job. He got the job over Vincent, actually. And so uh. there's a thought of maybe that's going to be the guy there. And then in, Cal- in Calgary, let's I mean, try the other one. Yeah, let's try the other one. Exactly. Maybe we just picked wrong. And, and I talked to Pat Verbeek, their GM, and I didn't really get a sense of, of where they're going with it. Like, you know, I think you could look at their roster and say, okay, maybe the idea is to have a veteran coach because they aren't going to have a lot of veteran voice on that roster. Um, but at the same time, I, Verbeek didn't really shoot down the idea of having a younger coach that kind of grows with the team, which is some, what some teams like to do when they're this young. Um, it'll be interesting to see which way they go. I, I didn't get a real, a real feel for which way Verbeek is leaning on that one. I don't get the sense that Pat Verbeek is an easy, uh, you know, person to read. <laughs> <laughs> Pat, I, I, I charmed him though, Haley, because oh. I told him that the team, the team that made me fall in love with hockey was the 88 Devils. And he was a part of that team. That was infamously the team where their coach, you know, told the the ref, have another donut, you fat pig. And the refs refused to work the next game. I was at the game where the amateur refs worked when I was a kid. So I charmed him a little bit with that All little right. anecdote. Yeah, loosen him up a bit. That's good. It's good for anyone listening who wants some tips on how to do this whole thing. Just Journal, Journalism 102. <laughs> if 101 is learning how to write a story, 102 is learning how to charm a source that really isn't going to give you anything. Absolutely. Great stuff. Thanks for doing this, Greg. I appreciate it. All right, there goes Greg Wyshynski from ESPN. A little bit of everything there. Rip around the league, get some tips on on how to do this if you're interested in media at all. In that conversation, including the Journalism 102, is brought to you by the Atlas Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar, excuse me, using the same secret recipe since 1975. You can dine in at 6060 Memorial Drive Northeast, takeout or delivery at 403 248 33. 44. We're going to head to a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to dive in on the Chicago Blackhawks. What comes next after they won the draft lottery? Assume they're going to be taking Connor Bedard first overall and the impact that he is already having on that organization. That's coming up next on Hockey Central and Sports at 960 The Fan. You're listening to Hockey Central 960 with Haley Salvian on your home of the Flames, Sportsnet 960 The Fan. The Chicago Blackhawks, as we know now, won the NHL's draft lottery. Wonder who they're going to pick first overall. Let's uh, let's ask Ben Pope from the Chicago Sun-Times. He joins us now on the Atlas Pizza guest hotline. Ben, how are we doing? That's a tough question to start off. Who goes number yeah, one? A tough one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think it's going to take them about all of 10 seconds to, to pick Connor Bedard. Um, although it'll probably take another 10 minutes for the announcement to come once we get to June 28th, but it's about <laughs> as easy as decisions get. And you know that they're going to take the whole five minutes or whatever. That's the thing that it's like, yeah. hmm, you know, we're going to, we're going to take the whole five just in case somebody calls us and offers us something we can't refuse <laughs> or just for I've dramatic. I've always wondered effect. about that, even in, even watching the NFL draft and, and other sports, it, every time the the first team always does take the whole allotted time, and 
it blows my mind every time. The thing about the NFL draft that gets me not to go too far off track is they give them the full five minutes, like in the third round. I'm like, why is this? Ha- why? Why? But it doesn't go as slowly as the NHL draft does at the same time. Something's not adding up for me. It's like every team yeah, gets yeah, five minutes, but the NFL draft seems like, I don't know, more smooth. I can't say I've ever watched past the first round of an NFL draft. So I'll, I'll take your word for that. Yeah, I have. I don't. I don't know why. I watched like all of it this year. Had to. Had to see who the Pittsburgh Steelers were going to take in the fifth round or whatever. Apparently, that was really important to me this season for for no reason at all. Um, but to get back to the Blackhawks and what we expect is going to be their draft of Connor Bedard. What does winning that lottery and getting first dibs at him mean for Chicago? I think we've already seen uh, the impact of just winning that lottery hours after just with season tickets and, and everything that that's coming to the team. So what, uh, what does this mean for, for the organization? Yeah, it's absolutely huge on and off the ice. Um, you mentioned season tickets there and um, the, the fact that in 12 hours, they sold 5.2 million worth of new tickets for next season, including 1,200 full season packages, just staggering numbers. I mean, obviously you'd expect the, getting the number one pick to have an impact, but uh, 50 days before they even actually make the pick to really during the middle of the night too, um, to have that kind of financial impact is, is pretty incredible. And we're going to see that continue throughout the summer. Um, and it also trickle into other things like corporate sponsorships and uh, media rights packages and uh, more than just ticket sales in terms of the business side of things. And then obviously on the ice, it's going to accelerate the rebuild quite a bit as well. It's not like the Blackhawks are probably going to be a playoff team next year. Um, there's still a lot of building to do, but uh, certainly it gives them the kind of peace that um, really makes or breaks whether this kind of rebuild is successful that they can build around for the future. So certainly very impactful in many regards. Yeah, and I think it's tough to compare the eras, obviously, because one guy hasn't even been drafted yet, but we're already seeing you know, scouts and analysts saying like this guy is going to have like Patrick Kane level impact on the ice for, for this team's success for the years to come. It might be a little bit unfair considering he's so young and Patrick Kane, uh, you know, did so much in Chicago, had so much success there, but it seems like a really good building block for this organization to have, you know, right at the end of, of the era of, of Kane and Taves. Yeah, the timing is, is definitely fortuitous um, to, to win the lottery the exact year that the Kane and Taves contracts expire and that they move on. And um, the fact that Kane is the only other number one draft pick in team franchise history um, obviously invites some comparisons there. Plus the fact that they maybe play a little bit of a similar style, um, similar body type, um, there is obviously other differences as well, and that is certainly a very, very high um, amount of pressure and expectation to put on a 17-year-old right now. So um, it probably is unfair, as you say, but uh, definitely the, the comparison makes sense in many regards. Um, but I think the Blackhawks are, are going to be pretty emphatic about letting Bedard um, choose his own path and not put too much pressure on him to be another Kane or um, to, to follow a certain direction. Um, it's kind of why they decided to move on from Kane and Taves after this season to 
clear the deck and sort of create a fresh start for Bedard and all the other young prospects that the team has accumulated and will continue to accumulate to come in and uh, mold the team for themselves, not have any power vacuums in the room and be able to kind of grow it organically back up again. So um, I think they're, they're going to try very hard to, to let Bedard kind of lead that and, and not um, put any specific expectations or um, directions on him. But uh, it's, it's definitely going to be a really interesting process to see how he, how he matures as the years go on. So this is interesting because Jonathan Taves' exit opens up the Blackhawks captain position for the first time in 15 years. Do you think they name a captain, you know, somebody like Seth Jones, so you can have the C, you could have a captain in the room, it goes to a more veteran guy, or do you think they keep that vacant until Connor Bedard is ready for that? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, one that I've been grappling with um, since the end of the season, and I do think that winning the lottery and getting Bedard, it probably increases the odds that they leave it vacant. Um, but I think even before that, that seemed like a possibility just because it's kind of the in vogue thing to do. Um, eight teams finished this past season without a captain. The Flames and Coyotes haven't had one for two years. Um, for, for a team, teams that are rebuilding in particular, there seems to be this kind of idea that um, the captaincy should be reserved for a face of the franchise kind of player. Um, and when you don't have a face of the franchise clearly established that teams have recently been often leaving it open, which is pretty different, actually, when you look back at um, the way captaincy used to be viewed um, in the eight years before Jonathan Taves became captain in 2008. The Blackhawks had had five captains, including a couple of guys who were only captain for one year. And it was more just sort of a, an annual leader of the roster position. Um, than a face of the franchise kind of title. So I think the evolution of a modern NHL captain, the expectations of that role play into this and make it particularly likely that they, that they don't name a captain immediately. But it, it's certainly not impossible that they would. Seth Jones, obviously, as you mentioned, um, has the seven years left under contract. So uh, if they're looking for a guy who is almost certainly going to be around for a while, he would be an obvious choice. Um, fellow defenseman Connor Murphy, probably not nearly as well known outside of Chicago, but is a big leader in the room and has been around a lot and is really well respected um, in all areas of the organization. So he could be a candidate as well. But I would say the leading option at this point is probably that they'll leave it open for next season. How do you think Kyle Davidson approaches the next couple months here? I know you said they're going to kind of try to leave things open, let Connor Bedard kind of, you know, do his thing. But there, there is quite a bit to do in Chicago. There's only 13 players currently signed for next season right now. They have a ton of money to work with. Do you think that he just starts kind of spending that money and trying to lock in players via trade or free agency? Or do you think uh, he's going to keep things open and flexible given there could be, you know, an influx of young top talent with the amount of draft picks that they do have over the next couple of years? Long-term flexibility definitely remains the number one priority at this point. Um, they, they know how valuable cap space is, especially in the modern NHL, and they know that these teams at the moment are probably going to look a, quite a lot different than the team they eventually field when they start trying to contend again. So uh, maintaining that long-term flexibility is going to be super important, and this doesn't change that. But what this does change is probably make Davidson a little bit more aggressive in terms of bringing in some decent offensive players on short-term contracts to just give Bedard a little bit of support next season and, and the year after. So he's not totally thrown to the wolves, not totally having to shoulder the entire load himself. 
Um, so I think we will see them probably try to sign some free agents to, to one- or two-year contracts um, just to fill out the top six, uh, whether that's bringing back guys like Max Domi and Andreas Athanasiu or uh, maybe reaching for someone like Tyler Bertuzzi or one of the bigger-name forward free agents. Um, again, they're, they're going to have to convince those guys to, to not want more than two years, though, but they are willing to, to give them a pretty high salary in order in exchange um, they certainly have a lot of cap space at the moment, as you mentioned. They actually are going to have to do a little bit of work to even hit the salary floor this coming <laughs> season, um, whether that's taking on a bad contract for draft pick compensation from another team or or maybe giving out a little bit ridiculous free agent contracts just to, to get there. Um, that, that will be something they have to be mindful of. So I think we will see them be fairly active this summer, but it's not going to be anything that's going to affect the team beyond 2024, 2025. I'm curious about Max Domi. Obviously he was traded to the Dallas stars and he's fitting in there really well in the playoffs. Um, but he fit in really well in that Blackhawks dressing room. Uh, and it seemed like uh, the coach was a fan. Seemed like the GM was a fan. Seemed like Domi really liked being in Chicago. Like, I wonder if this is one of those situations where, yeah, they traded him at the deadline. They got an asset, but he can just come and sign back in, in free agency this summer. Yeah, I think that's definitely a real possibility. Um, you're definitely correct in what you said. I feel like all sides really liked how it worked out. Um, he was he, he had a very strong, productive season, even on a poor team, and seemed to enjoy it. Uh, he had a good impact in the locker room. Teammates liked him. Um, and, and it does seem like after bouncing around so much the past three or four years, he probably would appreciate some stability in terms of team and location. So um, even though he's still actively playing for Dallas, and it's kind of awkward to have that conversation now. Um, I'm sure once we get to that point around free agency, there will be some serious conversations about bringing him back on maybe a two-year deal. Um, I think he, he'd be a good influence on Bedard as well. Uh, he and Kane got along uh, very well this past season, and to, to so have him sort of build on that experience and then maybe uh, impart and, and mentor Bedard through a little bit of that could also be helpful. So um, Dallas will have the first opportunity to re-sign him, obviously, and um, it seems like he has been decent for them, so that's certainly a real possibility. But if he does hit the open market, I think the Blackhawks would be interested. Um, we got a couple more minutes left here. Your final question for you, Ben, and we are talking to Ben Pope from the Chicago Sun-Times here on the Atlas Pizza Guest Hotline. Um, Alex Daylock was named a finalist for the Masterton um, you know, this week. I know you had a story about him uh, on the Chicago Sun-Times. What can you tell us about his perseverance and, and why he's been named a finalist for this trophy? Yeah, but uh, Stalock really had a fantastic season um, this year. It was, was really a great story. He'd, he'd played only one NHL game the past two years um, after being diagnosed with myocarditis, um, heart inflammation from, from COVID-19. Uh, obviously a very serious uh, issue. I think it, uh, for a long time he thought his career might be over. Um, but he, was, he decided to take a risk and, and try coming back and ended up um, that his heart didn't have any complications and he was able to play this season. And even within the year, he battled through uh, concussion and then some, some later on uh, ocular eyesight issues. Um, he's really battled through so much on the health side. And I know the masters and often becomes um, kind of a, a just a, a determined by how much adversity a player has overcome. And uh, stay like it's definitely done that. But I think even beyond that, just, um, the impact he had on the team in terms of on and off the ice uh, was also very impressive. Um, in the locker room, really funny guy, 
really helped keep the mood light when they were going through many of the losing streaks that they endured this season. Um, uh, just an immediately one of the most popular teammates. And then on the ice, uh, finished up with, I think, a 9.09 save percentage on one of the worst defensive teams in the league, which is impressive in itself. Um, if, if he had played more games, if he had been able to stay in the lineup a bit more, I think he probably would have gotten even more attention for his on-ice performance this year. Uh, but but really a, just an impressive season all around for him to, to battle through so much and come back and um, be such a, a, a steadying presence on and off the ice for the Blackhawks. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem like they're going to be able to bring him back as a free agent this summer um, just to, to make room for Arvid Soderbloom, their top goalie prospect, to, to move into the NHL next year with Peter Morozik also under contract. But um, I, it sounds like Stalock is, is hoping to continue playing somewhere next year, and it's great to see him get this kind of recognition uh, for the season that he had this past year. I'm uh, really, really happy for him, and I know it sounds like it means a lot to him as well. So uh, I appreciate you asking about that. It's definitely been a cool storyline. Of course. Well, thank you for, for coming on and, and sharing the insight into Staylock and, and Bedard and everything that's going on in Chicago. We'll have to do this again soon because, there's, like I said, there's a lot to do uh, in Chicago, so there's been a lot to, to follow and catch up on uh, as the summer goes on. Thanks for this, Ben. Yep, thanks for having me. All right, there goes Ben Pope from the Chicago Sun-Times. He joined us there on the Atlas Pizza guest hotline. Uh, before we go, get this. This is from one of Ben's colleagues in Chicago. It's from Mark Potash. Blast from the past, Connor Bedard's great-great-uncle, defenseman Jim Bedard, was a top Blackhawks prospect in 1950-51. Jim was compared to future Hall of Famer Ken Reardon, but only played 22 games in the NHL. A cautionary tale, perhaps? Or just a random factoid from a very uh, old newspaper snippet? Uh, something tells me that Connor Bedard is not going to only play 22 games. Knock on wood, barring something unforeseen and terrible. Uh, seems like that's a player with a really uh, great future ahead of him in the NHL. And that's all the time that we have for today here on Hockey Central. Uh, two games on tap, as we mentioned today. The Carolina Hurricanes will look to eliminate the New Jersey Devils. They're up 3-1 on the series. And then the late game, Dallas and Seattle game five. That series is locked in 2-2. Uh, so whoever wins will get a slight edge and be one win closer to punching their ticket to the Western Conference final. Sports at 960 The Fan.